0: So we're reading um, from 1 John, chapter 4, verse 7. 1 John, chapter 4, verse 7. It's right at the back of your Bibles. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends... Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister.
1: Thank you, Ruth. Good morning, everyone. Um, oh, that's nice when people reply. It's a joy and a privilege to be going on this journey together. It can be dense at times, I'm aware, but uh, I trust that it is rich and and worthwhile. I think it's worthwhile, otherwise I wouldn't be here. Anyway, um, I wanted to start, I want want you for a moment to think about your best friend. I want you to, to think back to when you first met. And I want you to remember how you felt about them in those early moments. Maybe you were a bit wary, maybe unsure about opening up. Uh, Perhaps you were excited for this new opportunity to get to know a new person. Uh, Maybe you clicked straight away and you just just got on like a house on fire. Or maybe you hated each other until something brought you together. Uh, I know when I first met my wife, Chloe, to be honest, I was pretty indifferent. She was a person, I was a person, and that was about as far as it went. It wasn't until we started spending more time talking to each other getting to know one another, that I really started to like her. And as you think about your friend, I suspect that your experience was something similar. Uh, It was as you got to know them, as you spent time with them, as you understood who they really were, that you liked them, that you loved them more and more. Together, as you peeled back the layers on each other's lives, as you found out more things to love about the other person, And now I think we go through a similar kind of process with our great God. As we understand more and more about who He is as Father, Son, and Spirit, we are drawn into even deeper and richer love with the God who made us and loved us and saved us. And that is what today in particular is about. Today, we are going to unravel some more of what we've been seeing of God and who He is, and that, I trust, is going to capture our affections, capture our hearts, going to fill our longings to be more like Him, to love Him more, to have our own hopes and dreams and passions to be directed by Him in all of His Trinitarian glory and beauty. Because, ultimately, that, that is what worship is. It is words and actions and lives that are shaped by a deep love for God and all that He is and all that He's done. Worship happens when our affections are directed to the one worthy of our adoration and praise. And that is why, as our hearts are captured by these truths today... Uh, Today is about our Trinitarian worship. Uh, The plan for today, so you know where we're going, uh, we're going to start with God Himself and see how His triune nature is what gives Him the capacity to love. Uh, We're then going to flow out from that to see how the, the Trinity enhances for us just how lovable God is. His triune nature is the key to unlocking our affections towards Him. Then we'll see how God as Trinity is the one who enables us to love uh, to love Him, uh, that we could never love God without His try and work in our hearts. And then finally, we'll reflect a bit on how uh, the Trinity helps us to love one another, gives us the capacity to love those around us. So hopefully, we may ready our hearts this morning for the transforming work of our beautiful God. First up, the Trinity... Enables God to love. Uh, One of the most well known and beautiful and succinct and cherished verses in all of Scripture for telling us what God is like uh, came in our reading this morning uh, in 1 John 4, where we read, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. And you may have noticed John said it again down in verse 16. God is love. And I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about these verses. It's not that God is loving in his character, though though that is true. It is not that God does love as if that is one of the many activities he partakes in. No, God is love, John tells us in His innermost being, in His essence. The the key to understanding who God is is to know that He is love. But I want to ask a question there. How can that be true? Or or perhaps, what are the necessary conditions for that to be possible of who God is in His essence? I want you to consider for a moment, uh, imagine a God who is not triune a simple, monad, single-person God, one who is all-powerful, who has existed for all eternity before the creation of the world, what would that kind of God be like? How would you describe that God? Why might that kind of God create? Why would that God produce the situation where there is something rather than nothing? Well, one of the earliest answers to this kind of question it comes in Enuma Elish, which is the, the Babylonian creation myth, bit of ancient history for you. Uh, in their head, the god Marduk, this big fella here, he creates humankind so that he and some other weird god friends who happen to be around, so that he can have slaves, so he can sit back and relax and enjoy the labor of his human workforce. And I think that makes a bit of sense, doesn't it? I suspect for many of us, if we, if we imagined we were a God for a moment, with all of that power, wouldn't you want to do something like that? If God was just a single person, solitary, alone, for all eternity, of course, that kind of God would create for His own satisfaction. Create a world, create a humanity to fulfill a lack within Himself to fill his needs, make his experience of life, whatever that might mean for a God, a little more comfortable, a little more easy. Even, even if that kind of God created out of desire for relationship, it would be a selfish desire, a selfish relationship. It's not relationship about love, but about this lonely God no longer feeling lonely. A single-person monad God is ultimately a selfish God. But friends, that is not our God. Our God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, and has been for all eternity. Our God has existed forever as deeply loving Father, who delights in lavishing His affection upon His Son and His Spirit, our God has existed forever as beloved Son, adoring His Father and reflecting that adoration over, as it overflows to the Spirit. Our God has forever been Holy Spirit, an outpouring of that shared love between Father and Son. Our God does not create for His own satisfaction. Ours is a God who loves so deeply, so radically, so eternally that he desired to share that love with others, to expand the realm of his affection beyond his triune self, out into a world of others who can love, and perhaps even more importantly, others who can be loved. Look with me, if you will, at John 17. Uh, It's up on screen for you, so you don't have to. I made it easy for you. John 17, from verse 24, Jesus prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be here where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known In order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Do you hear through that all of these rich tones of love? You loved me before the creation of the world. We know that the Son was with the Father for all eternity, and here Jesus gives us insight into what that eternity looked like. It was shaped by love, a father's immeasurable, unstoppable, perfect love for his son. The whole, the whole reason as well we see here for sending his son, the father's plan A from all eternity of sending Jesus to save humanity, the humanity they would create from their own sin, it is right there in that very same love. Jesus says at the end, in order that the love you, the Father, have for me, the Son, that that love may be in them, is why He came. The whole grounds for redemption, the whole grounds for creation even, is so that humanity, that you and I, may experience the very love that the Father has for the Son. It was the overwhelming love of the Trinity that inspired them to create so that others may experience that love as well. I want to introduce you here to a brother from history. Those who came on Wednesday met many of them. Uh, This today is Richard of St. Victor. Uh, he was a medieval Scottish philosopher and theologian from the thirteenth century, and Richard wanted to demonstrate that this doctrine of the Trinity was not unreasonable but was in fact necessary when argued from pure reason. Uh, his approach has a lot of flaws, uh, most obviously, as we noted last week, uh, to know God, God has to reveal himself, and, and throughout his work richard he doesn 't explicitly refer to the bible but Nevertheless, his argument contains a lot of rich and useful reflections on God and his triune nature. You see, for Richard, God had to be triune. For God to be God, to be supreme in all forms of virtue and goodness, he had to be supremely loving. Richard said, true and supreme charity cannot be lacking. And there's more of a quote, but I'm not going to read it. But, but for, for that love, for that charity to be supreme, it had to be directed towards one deserving of that love. It couldn't be principally directed towards anything in creation. A creation falls short of God's glory. It's imperfect. It's temporal. It's time-bound. It's not eternal like God is. Supreme charity can't be directed towards oneself. That, that would be selfish love, not interested in others. No, supreme divine charity must be directed to another equally supreme, equally divine. There must, concluded Richard, be plurality in the divine unity. C.S. Lewis, who we're probably more familiar with, he makes a similar point. He says all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contained at least two persons. Love is something one person has for another. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. But for Richard, a duality of persons was insufficient. A love shared between two becomes insular, looks only to the delight of the other, the joy that they experience because of that love between just the two. Richard reasoned there must, in fact, be a third. A third equally deserving of that love so that the two may share that love with another. Love so perfect that it overflows from them too. And that is exactly the kind of triune love we see in God. Love of a father for his son that overflows to his spirit. Love that together they delight to share with their creation. A creation made so that others may share in their love. Isn't that a beautiful and glorious picture of our God? And I want to pause for a moment and, and keep dwelling on this thought for a second. The beauty of our God is because He is Trinity. All the things that we love about God can only be true of Him because He is triune. God creates because He loves. And He loves and loves essentially in His essence, in His very being, eternally, because He has eternally been Father, Son, and Spirit. it's It's not as if at some point, before creation, God became a father. If that were true, he would not at his very core be father. He wouldn't be eternally loving, eternally caring, eternally fatherly in all the best ways that our earthly fathers can be in an attempt to image our heavenly father. Fatherhood is not some veneer that God took on later, some icing on top of the God cake. God eternally, is Father, Son, and Spirit to His core, to His essence, and that is why He can love so deeply and richly. By contrast, take for a moment, if you will, the God of Islam. In Islam, there are 99 names of Allah, Allah's beautiful names, and I want to draw your attention to two of them. The 42nd is Al-Wadud, Al Karim, sorry, the generous, the bountiful. And the 47th is Al Wadud, the affectionate, the loving. If God were a single person God, as our Muslim cousins claim, these names cannot be a reflection of who He is at His very core. He cannot be generous if there has not been someone eternally to whom He could be generous. He cannot be loving and affectionate by his very nature if there has not always been someone for him to love. At some point, he must have been not loving, not generous. But this is not the God we worship. We worship an eternally triune God, a Father who has always been Father to His Son, a Father and Son who have always loved with such generosity that it overflows and needs to be shared with a third, the Holy Spirit. Three persons in rich, eternal, everlasting love for one another, overspilling into the creation as love for us, His creatures. What a beautiful God we have. And it is because He is triune that He is capable of this kind of love for His Son and so wonderfully for us. Now, the flow on from this is that the Trinity shows us that God ultimately is lovable. God has always been deserving of love, of course, even before He had fully revealed His triune nature. Uh, The Shema, you might remember from last week. Well, in the very next verse, we'll see what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And God had done many things to be worthy of that love, right? He had rescued His people out of Egypt. He had shown Himself to be mighty and merciful and kind but in the revelation of His Trinity, God's lovableness skyrockets. We become recipients, not merely of rescue, of a, of a land, but remember John 17, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you, you known to them in order that the love you have for me may be in them, that I myself may be in them. As the Trinity is revealed... We are welcomed into intra-Trinitarian love. And if you, again, remember last week, this happens as we experience the incredible gift of adoption. In John 1, when the Word who was God came, God the Son, we are told, to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And as the Spirit of the Father and Son is poured out, the Spirit we receive does not make you slaves that we may live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. By Him we cry, Abba, Father. As the Spirit unites us to the Son, we too become sons of the Father. And that is incredible, right? In, in countless beautiful ways. The love that the Father lavished on His Son for all eternity past, He now lavishes upon us. As what is the Son's by nature is bestowed upon us by grace. Way back in June, it was Father's Day in the US. I don't know why they have a different Father's Day, but they do. Um, and the NBA, for basketball fans, they released a little video of some plays with the kids. I want to show you it. Here it is. How blessed we are to provide
0: for our kids, to just give them a chance of being a successful life, whatever they dream about. you're sure?
1: And my son? It's great, because he get a chance to see his dad... Element. it's fun for him, I want to make
0: sure he has fun, I don't really care about myself, it's more about him. I really take pride in being a father and hands on, it's the best thing, you know, just seeing them grow, change month to month. I'll do whatever it takes as a father to make sure that they're happy, I'll give them every resource that they need, I'll support them no matter what. Just seeing my kids grow every day and take everything they can from me, it's a pretty cool thing, and I wouldn't trade it for the world i be
1: a father for sure. It's, it's adorable. For some silly reason, they, they didn't include this beautiful shot as Nikola Jokic won the championship with the Denver Nuggets holding his daughter. And I wonder, as you, as you watch a video like that, how does it make you feel? Does it fill you with, this, with warm feelings towards your own dad perhaps? Does it fill you with joy just seeing that love between a father and a child? Does it perhaps fill you with longing or sadness for a relationship that you're not able to enjoy? Or perhaps even dread of a twisted, disordered relationship that you've experienced? Brothers and sisters, if if those last two are true for you, I, I just want to take a moment to say how deeply I'm sorry that that is in your experience lost loved ones, the brokenness of our sinful world, earthly fathers who aren't what they ought to have been, I I grieve with you. But friends, however you feel seeing a video like that, the gospel lifts our eyes to an even greater father, to one who is more justly protective than any earthly father one who is more mercifully forgiving, one who is more generously giving, more patiently listening, more deeply and richly loving than the greatest of earthly dads. Because His perfect eternal love for His perfect eternal Son is now given to us by His perfect eternal Spirit. What a blessing, what a joy, what a privilege and an honour it is to be welcomed into the family of God, into the perfect intra-Trinitarian love of Father, Son and Spirit that they have shared for eternity. Who could possibly be worthy of a greater love, worthy of all our adoration, of our worship, than our Trinitarian God who made us, who saved us and who has loved us in a way He has loved for eternity. And yet, brothers and sisters, what is the point of a lovable God if we are unable to love Him back? In 2 Timothy 3, Paul describes what people are like these days in our world. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And in case that's not enough hear these words that are repeated throughout Scripture. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Paul quotes them in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is what we are like on our own. Despite all that God has done, despite all that God is, the sinful human heart turns away from Him and ceases to love the good, instead loving pleasure, loving ourselves rather than our triune God in all of His glory and beauty. You'll, of course, I trust, remember Jesus' affirmation of the greatest commandment, right? Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, says Jesus. But sin has darkened our minds and made them futile. Sin has made our souls impure that they wage war against ourselves. Our hearts pour out evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. They're prone to hardness and darkness and greed. We are so deeply unsuitable, inadequate to love our most lovable God. On our own, we are like Filthy, violent dogs charging into the pristine throne room of our God. And so what, what on earth can be done about that? Well, the beautiful thing is the Trinity answers this need as well. It is because God is triune that we are enabled to love Him. 2 Corinthians 2, Paul tells us, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. The spirit transforms our minds that are called to love God to a right understanding of all that God has done, all the lovable truths we experience in salvation, because who could help us know God but God himself? In 1 Peter 2, it's as we turn to the Son that our souls are cleansed. As we return to the Son who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls, that is when those souls are guarded from the wars sin wages against them. For who can guard and purify our souls but the God who made them and calls them to Himself? And our hearts... The centre of our affections and passions, our conscience, our will, on their own, dark and hard and greedy and evil. But it is into those very hearts that God pours His Spirit. A down payment, that is tiny, I'm sorry, a down payment, evidence of the full redemption and consummation that is to come. It is those hearts into which His Spirit is poured to fill us with hope that's not going to disappoint. Hearts into which His Spirit is poured by which we can cry out, Abba, Father. Because it is God alone who can capture our hearts for Himself. God alone who can break our hardness, our darkness, our evil, and write instead upon our hearts and minds His law that is love. Our minds and souls and hearts are all transformed into a loving posture towards our lovable God by our lovable and triune God. It is only as He indwells us by His Spirit, shepherds us by His Son, adopts us as Father, that we're enabled to love Him. And and remember, love Him we should This is not some coercive love that He elicits from us, not a love distinct from our own will and desire, not a love that is undeserved and undelightful. Our love for God is the most human thing we can do, the most glorious thing we can do, the most right and just and beautiful thing that we can ever do is to love our triune God with the love He enables within us. That we may be lovers of God as we should, as we ought, as we need, for His good and for our glory. Our good, His glory. And it's this love of, for God that drives, that motivates and fills our worship. Because remember that, ultimately, that is what worship is. It is love for God expressed in our hearts and minds and souls, embodied as our affections and passions are captured by the reality of God and who He is and what He's done. As as this, this love just erupts out of our very core in the ways that we speak about and think about and, and live in light of our great God. Love and worship that is enabled by God in His triunity. Michael Reeves has a beautiful little one-liner, we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. And brothers and sisters, we worship a God who is love, a God as, who, is, who as Father loves the Son and the Spirit. A God who has Son loves the Spirit and the Father, and, and the Spirit loves Father and Son. And so as we worship Him, we become like Him. Our affections are, uh, are directed rightly towards Him and only increase in their strength and depth as we become more and more and more like the God we worship and love. But I want to take it a, a, a step further, if I can. Our worship of God isn't just something we do in ourselves, but actually, but something that God does in us, and us in Him, in fact. Our friend Robert Letham, we met last week, putting it another way, from the side of God, the worship of the Church is the communion of the Holy Trinity with us, His people. We're inclined to view worship as what we do, but it is first and foremost something the triune God does. Our actions initiated and encompassed by His. Even our worship of God, our love of God, the greatest, the most beautiful, the most human thing we could ever do, is completely enabled by our triune God. It is first a thing He has done. What, what a gift from God. Our right love directed towards Him is something He is doing in us day by day. Again, for our good and for His glory. Letham again gives us a rich conclusion to this and guides us to our next point as he says, uh, we are called to worship the Holy Trinity, to live in loving, joyful union and communion with the Holy Trinity and precisely because of that, to live in loving communion with other human beings. The Trinity helps us love others. I'm sure you'll recall the next line uh, that Jesus says after telling us the greatest commandment. And the second, he says, is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. Much Like as the ravenous impact of sin has overtaken our lives and our attitudes towards God, sin too has turned our hearts away from one another, away from other human beings, people made in the image of God, worthy of love and honour. Instead, our sin turns our interests inwards. Again and again we have to be told, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. We need to hear this because these are the inclinations of our selfish hearts. And much of what we've already looked at does help us put our sinful, selfish sins to death. Uh, it helps us love our neighbour as well. The Father is transforming us into the likeness of His Son by the work of the Spirit. His Son, who I'm sure you'll know, in His earthly life, looked not to His own interests, but to the interests of others. In the Trinity, though, I think we're as well offered this rich framework for understanding the other, for valuing the other that forms just this another stake in the ground in our motivation for loving other people. Uh, those who came on Wednesday will remember we talked a little bit about social trinity. It's, it's this theological issue that arises when we think of personhood in an upward sense. Uh, things go deeply wrong when we start with our human experience to define what makes a person a person and apply that to God. Uh, to do so, it would be like taking a painting of a flower and using it to tell a flower what that flower ought to look like. Uh, to say to a radiant sunflower that its colours are wrong, its petals too many, too detailed, its seeds too neatly spiralled. That's, that's not how a painting works. The flower is not defined by the painting, no. The painting is defined by the flower that took me so long to get to work and no one even ooed. We, thank you, David. When we flip that instinct on its head, when we let God define personhood as we ought to let God define all aspects of the world He has made, there we are provided with a picture that is not only more accurate for our thinking on who God is, but that is a far more beautiful picture for understanding ourselves and those around us. Uh, Peter Toon, an Anglican theologian, he said it like this, The Christian understanding of personhood flows from the Christian doctrine of the three persons who are God. If God is simply a monad, then He cannot be or know personality. To be personal, otherness must be presented together with oneness. The one must be in relation to others. And so, as, as we look to God as we see the relations that the persons of the Trinity have with one another, we see what truly ought to define personhood. Relationship with God. When we use the term person to refer to a member of the Godhead, what we're trying to define is whatever it is that makes Father, Son and Spirit distinct from one another and their distinction is seen in their relations to one another. Father to Son, Son to Father, Spirit to Father, Spirit of Christ. And so it's those Godward relations that define personhood for us. Another theologian, to dump you with many quotes and people, um, Allah Lutz, says, a human person is one who can, in principle, be in communion with God. Because the, the persons of God are in communion with God And Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, is inviting us into that same communion, that same relationship the Son enjoys by nature, ours by grace. And I I think this this recognition has the power to transform the way we think about people around us. If they were, as our modern world defines personhood, distinct centres of self-consciousness, then what is primary about other people is not their ability to relate, but their difference. The fact that they are other, that they are distant, that they are ultimately incomprehensible in fullness. But the Trinity shows us personhood is about relationship. Therefore, other people cannot be seen as objects to be used for our advantage. Other humans are not Tools for our own self-advancement in our world, as we are so often told they should be, at least if we want to get ahead in life. People are not creatures to be judged or looked down upon or ignored. No, people, other humans, are relational beings who we ought to want to relate to, beings we should desire to know, to love, to delight in. We should want to share of ourselves and grow in understanding of others, because that is what personhood God shows us is about. But even more than that, more important than relations between human persons, the Trinity shows us, of course, that the, the primary thing about personhood is relationship with God. My hope... My desire for other people can never be, how do I use you for my advantage? My hope and my desire for other people can't be restricted just to enjoying one another in relationship. No, our hopes and our desires for other people should always, first and foremost, be that they would be in relationship with God. That's what makes us people, what makes us truly human, in fact, it's relationship with God. With the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. My friend Lethem helps us once more, pervasion by the Holy Spirit establishes our humanity. He makes us what we ought to be. And what we ought to be, of course, as we heard from Jesus, is to be lovers of neighbor and lovers of God as sons of our Heavenly Father. All of it enabled and motivated and shaped by our Trinitarian God. Brothers and sisters, our God is triune. One God, three persons. Three persons, one God. And because God is triune, He is relational, He is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit. That is why He's able to love. In His very essence, to His core, from before all time, He always was and always will be love, because He is triune. And because God is triune, He's lovable, He adopts us into family. He makes us sons. He is more than just a God. He is our Father, our Brother, our Transformer. He loves us and invites us to love Him. Because God is triune, He can help us love Him. He indwells within us. He enables and works in us the very acts of worship that delight in Him as His Spirit makes us more like His Son. And because God is triune, we can love one another his trinity shows us true personhood is found in relationship, most powerfully our relationship with him. And it's the potential for that relationship that makes us human persons, that one relationship that we ought to be inviting every person to that they may experience the ultimate relationship with the triune God who made them, loves them, and saves them. The trinity shapes and moulds all our affections about God, our worship of Him, our affections towards each other, all of that pouring out of how we feel about our triune God. And so praise Him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for being loving, for being lovable, for enabling our love of Him and one another, because our triune God is love. Let's pray together. Father, we are so deeply thankful for the triune nature you have shown us of yourself, your Son, and your Spirit. That you are a God who can love deeply, who is deeply lovable, who enables our love of you and of one another. And so, Father, we pray that you would keep working in us by your Spirit to make us like your Son, to love you more and more and others more and more as we worship you and live for your glory. Amen.